This week on the Backtable Podcast. One of the things that I think is tough for the staff is that they don't get to see that patients have gotten better. If you're doing your patients intubated, you have no idea how they've done. And even if you're not doing them intubated, most patients don't jump off the table um, and say, I can walk and talk again. You see their improvement in the next couple of days. What I've started doing is, particularly if the patients have done well, I'll bring my team up, the team that was involved in that patient's care, I'll bring them up to the patient's bedside to be able to talk to the patient and have the patient say directly to them how appreciative they are as a patient and have the team see what a difference their care made in having this person come back to a more normal life. This is Venu Vadlamudi, and I'm your host this week, and I'm excited to introduce our guest today, Dr. Marty Radvani, who's a neurointerventional radiologist at University of Arkansas, and Dr. David Sachs, who's an interventional radiologist in Reading, Pennsylvania. Before we dive into our topic today, I just want to say a quick word uh, from our sponsor, RADPAD. RADPAD was developed by physicians for physicians, clinically proven radiation protection during CINE and digital subtraction angiography. Don't bet your career or your health on anything less. Trust RADPAD radiation protection shields for all your fluoroguided interventions. See radpad.com for, for, for more information or contact info at radpad.com for a free radiation evaluation and no-brainer radiation protection cap. And let them know you heard about it on the Backtable podcast. Before we get into today's topic about stroke, guys, Marty, Dave, do you use anything special for radiation protection uh, or have you had any experience using RADPAD materials before? As a matter of fact, Fanyu, I've been using RADPADs or the RADPAD equivalent for probably 15 years. Oh, wow. Um, Great. And I use them on every CT intervention case. I use them on every fluoro case where I'm expecting more than just a couple of minutes of fluoro if my hands are going to be close to the beam. Yeah, good good to know. Yeah, I've, I've used it for a couple of years now, more for long peripheral vascular cases, for example, where I know there's going to be a lot of scatter radiation. All right. So with that, what I'd like to do is just sort of take a moment and, and have Marty and Dave maybe give a little bit of a brief introduction of yourself and you know, where you're in practice, and, and then we'll move into the, the topic of the day, which is interventional radiologists in stroke. So I'll start with you, Dave, if you don't mind to uh, give us a little bit of an intro about yourself. Sure. I'm Dave Sachs. I've been in practice since... 1985 was an interventional radiologist. I did my training at the University of Pennsylvania, and I've been at the same hospital for the past uh, 35 years, and uh, I'm looking forward to another 35 years here. That's probably a bad joke. <laughs> well, it may um, not be bad for your partners. They may appreciate <laughs> that. <laughs> I got interested in stroke interventions back the time that the PROACT trial was being completed. That was probably about 1999, and started up a stroke program here, which had some bumps along the road, and we really didn't take back off again until the more modern devices became available. My hospital is a community hospital. We're about 625 beds. 
We are a primary stroke center. We are hoping to become a comprehensive stroke center, but we still have more work to do to be able to meet those requirements. Great. Thank you for that. Marty, if you don't mind to uh, give a little introduction of yourself. Sure. My name is Marty Radbani. I am actually a dual trained IR and neurointerventionalist. I initially had my body IR training back in the mid nineties. And then I went on into the army where I served almost 10 years as an attending as a body IR. And then I actually didn't get enough abuse the first time. So I went back and did a neurointerventional fellowship. And I've been primarily involved in neurointervention for about the little over the last 10 years now. I am currently in Little Rock at the University of Arkansas for Medical Sciences. And up until I think just a couple months ago, we were the only comprehensive stroke center in the entire state. Do you mind to sort of maybe give us a, a bit of a background of IR involvement in stroke care, maybe some of the early trials, data, registries, et cetera, and some of the efforts over these last couple of decades? Sure. As I had mentioned, I became involved in 1999, and it was as a direct result of the PROACT trial. At that time, PROACT was using a drug called prourokinase, which was a prodrug um, to which would be metabolized to become the lytic agent urokinase. Because it was a new drug, the company had to have new trials in addition to the approval that had previously been granted for urokinase. In preparation for their having what they expected to be a positive uh, trial showing benefit from intraarterial lytic agent, the company Abbott was sending selected interventional radiologists for training and doing stroke interventions at the Mary Institute in Memphis. And at that point, we went to a, I think it was a pig lab, and we were doing cases on, on animals doing catheter-directed thrombolysis. And unfortunately for Abbott, the FDA requirements were that for a new drug, there need to be two positive trials, not just one, even though the PROACT trial was clearly a very positive trial with an odds ratio of benefit of about two to one, which is very similar to the odds ratio of benefit that we've seen in the modern trials with mechanical devices, they were required to do a second trial. And that trial never occurred for a variety of reasons. As a result, the drug that we had to use, which was perfectly acceptable, was urokinase. And interventional radiologists and neurointervention people continued to do catheter-directed thrombolytic therapy using microcatheters that were placed up to the face of clot or potentially embedded into the clot. There were some unique multi-sidehold infusion catheters, which were designed specifically for intracranial thrombolysis with short segments of multiple side holes. When UK became unavailable, then people switched to TPA with the usual angst about what dose and what other drug interactions there might be. Interventional radiology involvement in stroke, therefore, was from the very beginning. And the Society of Interventional Radiology 
got involved at a professional society level also from a very early time. For instance, in 2003, SIR wrote quality improvement guidelines for carotid angioplasty and stenting. And then in 2004, we wrote uh, training competency and credentialing standards for diagnostic uh, cerebral angiography, carotid stenting, and cerebrovascular intervention. And these were written in collaboration with the ASITN, which has since become SIS, the Society of Neurointerventional Surgery. In 2009, SIR wrote training guidelines for intraarterial catheter directed treatment of acute ischemic stroke. And we went on to then write quality improvement guidelines in 2013. Those quality improvement guidelines were multi-specialty, multi-society, and international. And they were updated um, in 2018 to reflect the modern uh, mechanical device era as opposed to just the thrombolytic era. SIR has written multiple position statements on the role of interventional radiologists in stroke interventions. We've written combined position statements with CIRSI in Europe and with URSA, which is the Australian Interventional Radiology Society. And we have updated our training guidelines within the past year. I think the bottom line is that interventional radiologists and the Society of Interventional Radiology has been very active in the field of stroke prevention and stroke treatment for pretty much the last 20 years. Great. Thank you, Dave. That's an excellent overview of, of not only some of the background uh, with things like urokinase and pro-urokinase, but also, of course, the uh, great work that interventional radiologists such as yourself and the society have been doing, as you said, for almost more than two decades at this point. Now, with that, I'll turn to Marty. Of course, in the last you know, five years in particular, there have been this uh, huge groundswell and change in terms of how stroke is addressed, specifically with mechanical thrombectomy. For those listeners who may not be as knowledgeable about stroke or endovascular thrombectomy, would you be able to sort of summarize kind of the last five years of, of data and why there's been this big pivot in terms of mechanical thrombectomy for stroke? Sure. Uh, just as a basis of background, stroke is the fifth leading cause of death in the United States and is one of the major causes of long-term disability in adults. From a number standpoint, almost 800,000 people in the United States alone have a stroke each year, of which approximately 90% of these are ischemic strokes. To put it in another way of looking at it, you know, somebody in the United States has a stroke almost every 40 seconds, and that translates to someone dying from stroke almost every four minutes. So it's a huge problem. Prior to 2015, there really wasn't a lot of literature uh, that was favorable for stroke therapy. There were a lot of studies that for various reasons did not establish mechanical thrombectomy as really being a very beneficial procedure. And then the, everything changed in 2015 beginning with the publication of the MR Clean trial, which was, as uh, David had mentioned earlier, IRs have been involved for a long time in stroke, and this was predominantly interventional radiologists in this stroke, in this uh, study. But there were five studies published in the New England Journal of Medicine alone during the six months of 2015, demonstrating the efficacy of mechanical thrombectomy in the treatment of acute, uh, acute ischemic stroke. 
And this led to just a complete overhaul, basically, of what we were doing in the field of treatment for patients with acute ischemic stroke. The American Heart and American Stroke Association published guidelines at that time based on many of these trials that led to the guidelines for treatment of patients within the first six hours of symptom onset. In 2018, two additional studies, Dawn and Diffuse 3, were published, which demonstrated the benefit of mechanical thrombectomy past six hours using perfusion imaging or imaging guidance to select patients for treatment in what we consider the extended time window. This led to another major update of the guidelines uh, from the American Heart and American Stroke Association for treatment out to 24 hours from a patient's last known well time. And so this has totally really changed what we used to do for patients. And, and, and prior to that, many patients did not receive any care. It was kind of a watch and wait thing. And now we have a surgical procedure that is very beneficial to patients. And it really changed the whole field of stroke therapy. Great, Marty. Yeah. Thank you for that uh, overview. Yeah. It's, of course, a lot of important and powerful data that have come out over the last five years. As Dave alluded to earlier, when you look at the number needed to treat with mechanical thrombectomy, it's somewhere in that two to three patient uh, range based on these latest trials. So clearly very powerful therapy. Now for both Dave and Marty, I think the next topic uh, we ought to discuss is kind of in the more modern era with including the endovascular trials and registries. What is the role of interventional radiologists within these more recent trials, et cetera. I know, Marty, you were just mentioning in the Mr. Clean trial. So if you don't mind to sort of expound on that a little further. Sure. Yeah. MR Clean was the first major trial demonstrating the effectiveness of endovascular for stroke. When it was first presented, it was, there was a trial from Europe and a majority of the operators in that trial, I believe it was approximately 75% were interventional radiologists. This was met at the World Stroke Congress in the fall of 2014, but basically a standing ovation from the attendees. I mean, it was just a change. But the important thing is this was the first trial. And, and it's important to point out that IRs had a huge, huge impact um, were the majority of the operators in this trial that was so profoundly positive that it changed stroke therapy. I think that it, it's also worth mentioning that one of the reasons that Mr. Kling relied so heavily on interventional radiologists is that they simply did not have enough neurointerventional physicians to be able to care for the patients and to run the trial. The Mr. Kling trial compared to the other trials that were published in that same year, those five randomized trials were put together into a combined analysis called the Hermes analysis. And Mr. Clean had the most liberal inclusion criteria, meaning basically they would treat almost anyone, including patients who looked like they'd had a large completed stroke. They did not require any kind of penumbral imaging to see was there salvageable tissue. And as a result, of their selection criteria, they had the worst outcomes of any of the five trials, but the likelihood, the odds ratio of patients benefiting was practically the same as the other four trials, indicating that 
interventional radiology treatment of these patients was as effective as the other four trials, which were predominantly, or if not entirely, run with neurointerventional physicians. One other registry that was heavily interventional radiology came from the Czech Republic. In the article that they published, they didn't say what percentage was interventional radiology, but they did use the words, the vast majority of the interventional physicians were, were IRs. And they had outcomes of 48% good clinical outcome, where good is defined in this field as being able to return to being independent. You might still have some deficit, but it did not interfere with being independent. Their 48% return to independence was almost identical to Hermes, which if I recall was about 46%. They had 74% successful revascularization. Hermes, I think was 71%. So again, a very strong contribution of interventional radiology, not only to patient care, but to the literature that confirms the value of this procedure. Great. Yeah. Thanks, guys. Yeah. Good Good discussion points on these recent trials and registries. Dave, I'm glad you mentioned that the Czech registry, I'd had more than a thousand patients in it. And as you pointed out, you know, had outcomes that were in essence equivalent to the randomized control trials and the Hermes collaborative data, compiling that data together. And again, as you pointed out, although they didn't specify the paper said vast majority, so certainly we can take that as at least 50%, let's put it that way. Now, with that kind of introduction, as far as the role of interventional radiologists in the more recent endovascular thrombectomy trials and registries, I think we ought to sort of dive into access to thrombectomy and the role of interventional radiologists in access to care. In in this country, you know, I, I think we continue to sort of struggle to identify exactly how many interventionalists, regardless of background, are involved in stroke care. But, you know, if you don't mind to sort of discuss a bit about what do we estimate the numbers as far as neurointerventional physicians formally trained versus interventional radiologists and you know some of the other maybe more recent data and paper that have come out supporting interventional radiologists uh, and access to stroke care. Sure. I, I think that access is truly a major issue. Some might say that whoever needs to be treated. Just about everyone in the U.S. is within an hour, if you include air transport, of being able to get to a center that provides this treatment. But I think that you obviously can't rely on air transport every day of the year. Now, those of us who work in trauma centers know how frequently helicopters are grounded. When we take a look at what the real numbers of access are, There was a 2019 survey of what percentage of patients with acute ischemic stroke are treated with thrombectomy. And in that European survey of somewhere around 50 countries, the average was 1.9%. Now, is that a good number or a bad number? What should the reference be? It's generally accepted that about 30% of acute ischemic strokes are due to large vessel occlusions. Not every single one of those would be a candidate for thrombectomy. As Marty mentioned, with the Dawn and Diffuse 3 trials, 
that have extended the window out to 24 hours. And with some recommendations that even patients with large completed strokes benefit also. Even patients with mild strokes can benefit. Patients who are above 90 years old can benefit. The absolute numbers of patients who do well is much smaller in some of those situations, but the ratio of improvement is probably about the same. That's led to some opinion pieces published in Stroke saying that there has been no cohort of patients yet identified that's been demonstrated not to benefit from thrombectomy. If that's the case, and we're saying that 30% of acute ischemic stroke patients are large vessel occlusions, then maybe something closer to 30%, 30%, perhaps 20% might be the right number. That should give you the context to appreciate that in Europe, it's 1.9% of patients that get thrombectomy. And in that survey, the most common reason that thrombectomy was not available was due to a lack of physicians who were appropriately trained to provide the procedure. How about within the US? The US data, there was an article just published a couple of months ago in Stroke looking at the Paul Coverdale registry. And in 2018, in the US, about 5.5% of patients received thrombectomy, up from 3.3% in 2016. So the numbers are improving as a result of the positive trials in 2015, but still 5.5% is a far cry from 20% up to 30% of the patients who could potentially benefit from being treated. I agree with you, David. I, I mean, I think there are still significant issues with patient access. I mean, that's one of the big issues. You know, I'm in a rural state now, which, you know, you were talking earlier about transportation, you know, all patients, you know, that article that came out and stroke back in 2014, they estimated that 97% of the population had access to intravenous capable hospitals and 85% of patients had access to endovascular therapy if you included air travel. But here I can tell you, you know, in the in rural Arkansas, patients almost never come by air. I mean, it is, they come by ground almost all the time. And this definitely leads to many cases, you know, more than I'd like to admit where you see the outside imaging performed and the time of transport is just so long that by the time the patient does arrive, it has gone from, you know, you've gone from a patient who would have been a great candidate for endovascular therapy to a hemispheric infarct. And it's a tragedy when you see that because it's really, it has to do with patient access to this technology, this ability to perform a thrombectomy. The article from the past that said, 97% of Americans have access within an hour or two hours has also become obsolete. A more recent article said that since stroke thrombectomy is now standard of care and every minute counts, our standard shouldn't be an hour. Our standard should be 15 minutes or 30 minutes. And with that new standard, they said that 
only 20% of the U.S. population has access to a thrombectomy-capable hospital within 15 minutes and 30% within 30 minutes. The flip side being 70% of Americans don't have access to a hospital that can provide this care within 30 minutes. How, how can we address this lack of access? You know, it's either that more hospitals offer this care, which has benefits and has problems too. Not every hospital is going to be able to do this well, or we have more sophisticated methods of bypassing those hospitals that can't provide this so that patients get sent more rapidly without having to be taken first to a local hospital. If we're talking about having more hospitals offer this, then we need to have more physicians who are trained to be able to offer this care and to do it well. We have some data as to how many interventional radiologists are involved in stroke care, and the data is soft. There was a survey that Searcy sent out, and their survey had a 12% response rate. One would expect that the response rate is skewed towards those physicians who were more interested in this field. But with the 12% response rate, they said at those hospitals that perform thrombectomy, 73% of those hospitals use interventional radiologists, 48% use neurointerventionalists, and the overlap is because 20, 21% use both. In 2019, SIR also had a survey. Our response rate was 17%, I'm sure with a similar bias as to who chose to respond. Of those responders, 53% said that they did thrombectomy procedures for stroke. The absolute number of IRs who responded positively were 170. So at least 170 and probably more of SIR members are performing thrombectomy. Now, SIR includes some physicians who have trained in neurointerventional, neurointerventional fellowships, the same as you and Venu. But we asked that question, and 91% of the responders did not have dedicated neurointerventional training, which means that 150 of them were body IR people. We then looked at what kind of institutions they were practicing at. And a lot of them were performing procedures at comprehensive stroke centers. And when we looked at the individual stroke centers, we calculated out that 25% of the comprehensive stroke centers in the country were using interventional radiologists. Some other data, article in 2018, about a third of thrombectomies were done by physicians who were not trained in dedicated neurointerventional fellowships and some data from Joint Commission Primary Stroke Centers from 2017 said that 60% of primary stroke centers were offering EVT. It's probably higher now. And of those, 41% relied on interventional radiologists. Based on this, this data, it seems compelling that interventional radiologists are a key component of providing access to thrombectomy in a situation where access is still far less than what would be optimal. 
Great discussion, guys, and review of, of the data. You know, Dave and Marty, you both referenced this recent paper by Siraj and colleagues in Stroke, talking that sort of using more current definition, if you will, of access to thrombectomy, that only about 20% of the U.S. Uh, is within 15 minutes of a thrombectomy given transportation time, or 30% within 30 minutes. And, you know, Dave, you had alluded to perhaps bypassing, and they did address that with, you know, some of their modeling in that paper. And even if you combine the two, they, they found that bypassing would probably improve access to care by another perhaps 16 or 17 percent. And by, I'm sorry, more thrombectomy centers, perhaps the top 10 percent of the thrombectomy centers being converted um, in, into thrombectomy capable would add perhaps another eight or nine percent. But nonetheless, even with all of those maneuvers, and let's say each one of those you know, were taken by, by facilities, either bypass and or becoming a thrombectomy center, that would still mean only about half of the U.S. population would be within uh, 15 to 30 minutes of thrombectomy. And at the same time, exactly to, to your point, Dave, who is going to provide the workforce for that? We, we, we certainly do not have the workforce at present to have that substantive increase in thrombectomy procedures or facilities based on recent data as far as, you know, the workforce within the U.S. As Dave, as you pointed out with the SIR survey we did last year, there are probably about 150 to 170 interventional radiologists, and as you said, perhaps more, but at least based on that survey that are providing interventional services for thrombectomy for stroke. And when we look at the membership of Society of Neurointerventional Surgery, at least as of last May, a year ago, there are about 700 neurointerventionalist senior members, as they're called. And so when you add all of these numbers together, you're still talking about perhaps 850 or so interventionalists in the U.S., regardless of background, providing stroke thrombectomy care. And so probably a far cry from the number that are needed in order to provide this more evenly, as well as if we were to increase the access to care uh, across the U.S., you know, you would certainly need a lot more in terms of workforce. The numbers that you presented in terms of the membership of SNIS would suggest that interventional radiologists are contributing about a 20% increase to the workforce. And in terms of the back of the envelope calculation, when I've spoken to vendors about what percentage of their sales do they think in their experience are going to interventional radiologists, the number that's come up has been about 15%. So we're in that same ballpark there and things are probably changing as the number of interventions is going up fairly rapidly. But I think that it's fair to say that interventional radiologists are providing 15%, 20% in that ballpark range of the thrombectomy procedures in this country. Yeah, great, great point, Dave, kind of regarding, well, what does that ultimately translate into? And, and I think it sort of reflects even a bit from the SIR survey showing that perhaps a quarter of comprehensive stroke centers are relying on uh, peripheral interventional radiologists to help provide thrombectomy care. So somewhere in that ballpark, as you, as you pointed out, in terms of even the overall workforce and, and numbers of cases. And I think it also kind of leads into a, a related topic, which certainly has come up in the neurointerventional literature, which is about 
call burden and burnout. And I think those are, you know, realistic things. All of us who do stroke thrombectomy face this in some form or fashion. And so we need to kind of be cognizant that that's also a factor. So it's not simply that you have enough of a workforce, but you need to have a workforce that can actually work and not be burned out by, by stroke. As we know, stroke is, of course, you know, an acute emergency. It, it happens when it happens and, you know, it can throw off your, your day of elective cases. It comes in the middle of the night. And so these are all factors when looking at the workforce. So it's not simply an absolute number of the workforce, but it's also having a, a functional workforce. Uh, well, I'm curious about, about your thoughts about that. Well, I have one other issue when you mentioned the call issue with that. Prior to stroke, you know, we used to think of call from a trauma standpoint or <clears throat> urgent cases, emergent cases. The typical turnaround time, you know, from the time I got called, you know, the whole team to include my technologist and nursing team, they had 45 minutes to an hour to get to the hospital, kind of get everything set up. Stroke completely turned that on its head. But the, you know, the requirement basically is the whole team is there within 30 minutes max, ready to go. That is a huge, huge difference if you think about it just from a call standpoint. You are tied, the entire team is now tied to a 30-minute radius from the hospital. That is a, that, you know, one hour, 30 minutes, that's a huge, huge difference in the response time. Because I know back in the uh, late 2000s when I was at, Johns Hopkins, that was one of the issues that came up because we had technologists who had been there, you know, 20 years, you know, when they signed on 20 years earlier, they had an hour to get to work. And now suddenly as a stroke center, we have a mandate of 30 minutes. And that is one of those other things that I don't think people take into account that, you know, even at two o'clock in the morning or on Sunday afternoon, you get 30 minutes to drop everything and be there. To add to what Marty's saying, you get to do that, not just for the stroke patients that you treat, but also for the stroke patients that you don't treat. You get called in for a number of cases that for whatever reason, you end up not treating. Perhaps their symptoms were due to a stroke mimic. If you're going to wait until you have all the imaging done to confirm that the case is a goat before you call your team in, then you're way behind the eight ball in terms of time. So many practices, including my own, get notified on the basis of a high clinical suspicion. And then if the case gets called off, we send people home or we consider that the cost of doing business. Therefore, the amount of disruption in your life and the lives of your staff and the interference in your schedule is significantly greater than just the number of cases that you end up treating. Great, great points in discussion. I, I, I think, and specifically to, to what you were discussing, Marty, about it's not just about the physicians. And I think that's, that's a really well put point because none of us can do any of the, you know, interventional procedures we do without the team, but certainly in and around stroke, it's, it's one of the very few time I would call hypercritical procedures that, that can really affect outcomes. As we know, with 10 minutes of delay, there can be significant decrease in, in good outcomes. And exactly to your point about the logistics, that means that we need the team to be in the hospital, in the angio suite, and ready to go within 30 minutes. And so in my previous practice in, in Metro DC, 
that's frankly, that's expensive. It's expensive to live in Northern Virginia and be within 30 minutes of the hospitals that we cover that covered stroke because those areas are just simply um, more pricey. It's a lot cheaper to be 45 to 60 minutes out if you are not covering stroke, you know, whether you're a technologist or a nurse. And so that influences, you know, our, our recruitment and retention. And actually just recently in JNIS, they published, I thought, a, a really smart article in the sense of addressing exactly this point, but they looked at burnout on healthcare providers who are not physicians, so specifically nurses and technologists. And so what they ended up finding, and, and they looked at, I think, 20 different centers, I believe. And so what they found was, if I, I think it was almost a 50% self-reported, self-reported burnout prevalence. And so that is a, a huge problem. You know, if we can't retain staff who are comfortable, competent, and able to come help with these cases, that's, of course, going to represent further issues of access to care. And, you know, the attrition rates and turnover will be potentially very high, which, again, can really jeopardize existing stroke programs, let alone uh, considering what are the the advances that we need to make to uh, increase the access to care. Um, Curious, between Marty and Dave and your practices, uh, both current and, and previous, what have you sort of seen in and around burnout issues or turnover with your staffing, specific with stroke? Well, it has been, as stroke has gotten busier and busier, the burnout rate and the attrition rate, I'll call it, has gotten higher and higher. You know, it's, we are having a challenge currently retaining, training and retaining technologists it kind of sways back and forth. Sometimes we have enough nurses, sometimes then, then that kind of drops down over the last couple of years. Now we're, we have plenty of nurses, but our techs are on the low side. And so it's been very, very challenging to keep the lab staffed 24 seven with the additional stress of those, the stroke call. We've had some issues with morale. We use the same staff that do body IR cases, do the stroke cases, as well as the aneurysm cases that are handled by the endovascular neurosurgeons that we also have on our staff. There are some IR techs that are really very excited to be involved in the neurointerventions. And then there are some that are aghast and hate it. And when we had enough techs, they'd actually split themselves into two groups of those that would be willing to be on the stroke call schedule and those that were not. But as we've gotten short-staffed with techs in general, uh, that was unable to be sustained. One of the things that I think is tough for the staff is that they don't get to see that patients have gotten better. If you're doing your patients intubated, you have no idea how they've done. And even if you're not doing, they've intubated. Most patients don't jump off the table and say, I can walk and talk again. You see their improvement in the next couple of days. What I've started doing is, particularly if the patients have done well, I'll bring my team up, the team that was involved in that patient's care. I'll bring them up to the patient's bedside to be able to talk to the patient and have the patient say directly to them how appreciative they are as a patient and have the team see what a difference their care made in having this person come back to a more normal life. 
Great initiative, Dave. I've, I've done something similar to that with my own team. And, and, and I agree that's such a you know, rewarding thing for them to see that uh, all of those stressful seconds and minutes during the case and them having to come in so quickly, et cetera, uh, of course, directly translates into these outcomes. Uh, one, one other sort of similar thing I've done is when seeing patients back in clinic at, at 90 days uh, to assess their modified rank in an outcome, especially those, as you pointed out, who've done very well, those are very gratifying or particularly memorable cases, challenging cases, uh, are, are very gratifying, I think, for the uh, staff to see. So I think that can perhaps be one way to somewhat address uh, issues of burnout and attrition. But, uh, but I think nonetheless, these are you know, real issues, both for the physician providers as well as the rest of the team. So I think uh, a, a good discussion on, on these topics. What are the current training requirements for interventional radiologists interested in performing stroke thrombectomy? Well, that's a topic that I've been actively involved in. I was the uh, chair of the writing group for the updated SIR stroke training standards. The writing group that we created was very diverse. We had people who were recently out of training. We had people who had uh, only done IR fellowships, people who had only done neurointerventional fellowships, people who had done dual fellowships like you and Marty. We had people from other specialties such as neurosurgery and stroke neurology. We didn't want to have a parochial perspective from any one of these kinds of backgrounds. Our bottom line was that we wanted to come up with a training paradigm that we felt would allow interventional radiologists to have outcomes that met national benchmarks. A couple of years ago, SIR had updated the multinational, multi-society quality standards for stroke interventions. And those quality standards dealt with uh, how fast can you get the clot out? How successful are you? What percentage of the time are you successful having revascularization? What percentage of your patients have good clinical outcomes? And uh, we said that these training guidelines should produce physicians who can achieve outcomes that meet those benchmarks, let alone the expectations from the various randomized trials. With that goal in mind, we said that we would create training standards that might be hard for people to meet if that's what it took for people to do the job well. We expected that we would not make everyone happy. We might make no one happy. And there was a diversity of opinions on the writing group as to what the right training numbers are. What we came up with was that you need to have adequate cognitive training. Cognitive training, things that could be easily measured where you had to have interpreted at least 200 CTs, uh, MRs of the brain, CTAs and MRAs and perfusion studies. And you had to have interpreted, not necessarily performed, but interpreted 200 catheter angiograms. And then there was a whole lot of cognitive knowledge just about stroke clinically that is required. And then we had numbers for technical expertise that 
the operator should have performed as primary operator at least 200 selective arterial catheterizations of which 50 had to be cerebrals. That would include 100 super selective microcatheter placements of which 10 had to be in the head and neck and 10 carotid bifurcation revascularization procedures and 30 mechanical thrombectomy procedures. And these needed to be mentored. These are not easy to achieve, particularly if you're already out in practice, you're in a community hospital, and there's no neurointerventional physician on staff. And it could be that in that situation, that's an insurmountable obstacle. There are ways in theory that it could be worked out, but in some places, it will be insurmountable. And we said that the outcomes of these training cases must meet international standards, both for the diagnostic studies as well as for the interventional standards. We have gotten some feedback. Feedback from the neurointerventional community has been that these training standards are insufficiently rigorous. Feedback from some of the body IR community is that it's overly rigorous. That kind of feedback is kind of what we expected. SIR is working to try to provide the education that people need to meet these standards, but everyone's situation is going to be different. Great, Dave. Thank you for that uh, summary. And, and of course, thank you for your leadership in leading the, the writing group for the updated uh, training standards. As you pointed out, it was a very diverse group and you know a lot of diversity of opinion and and really not to get overly into the weeds, but you know we did not always agree on everything. We had to do some of those Delphi votes and everything, as you recall. And so it was challenging to put together, ultimately trying to put together something that was uh, rigorous enough, but ultimately keeping in mind that perhaps, as you pointed out, some may be happy, nobody may be happy, and and perhaps you know it would be uh, a very challenging set of training cr uh, criteria for those, especially those who might be in practice. But ultimately, try to keep in mind that patients, you know, ought to have people involved in their stroke care who are not just uh, interested in you know the the disease or have have seen one or two cases, but truly have had you know training, neurosciences training, cognitive, technical, etc., in order to provide them outcomes that meet international benchmarks and standards. And you alluded to, and I think it's a great segue, and, and I'll uh, uh, tee this off for Marty, about what are some of these educational and training resources for interventional radiologists who are uh, either interested in or currently involved in stroke? Marty, do you mind to sort of elucidate on that? Well, uh, SIR has a history of developing educational resources for IRs interested in stroke as well as other disease processes. As far as stroke is concerned, there was the clots course, which David, I believe you were involved in, which was the predecessor to the more recent course that SIR had put together. Back in the fall of 2014, SIR began developing the success, the successor to the clots course, which little did we have any idea what was coming in the following six months. And in conjunction with the 2016 annual meeting, the SIR stroke course made its debut. And I think it was a very timely, uh, I wish we had put it out one year earlier, but we didn't, you know, we didn't have our crystal ball. 
the course has grown. Initially, it was a one-day course, which covered a lot of the cognitive and even the technical aspects of uh, stroke treatment. We have, at the course, we have uh, neurologists, uh, stroke neurologists who have actually worked with us to present and develop the content, which has been, I think, is fantastic. We've been able to have imaging folks, uh, some who actually even specialize stroke perfusion imaging, uh, CT and MR are their areas of interest from a research standpoint. And so we've been able to put this all together in a very robust course. Um, initially, the course was primarily the kind of stroke pathophysiology and the technical aspects of performing the procedure. And as the course has grown, we've started to include more things to include the imaging portion, which initially was part of the stroke course. And then we recognized that actually this is something with, that would be useful for an even larger body of people. So we broke it out from the stroke course itself. And the last couple of years, uh, we've had a SAM session on stroke imaging that is part of the annual meeting which really allows uh, attendees the opportunity to obtain updates on the imaging workup of patients with uh, suspected acute ischemic stroke. Last fall, SIR put together the first uh, stroke imaging boot camp, and uh, Vanu, you were uh, coordinator, co-coordinator with me, and uh, that was at the ACR Learning Center. And I think it was a very robust course that we designed, and we initially designed it for interventional radiologists to help them meet more of these cognitive things that Dave was mentioning by having a huge, huge library of complete imaging, you know, going the entire DICOM imaging set that you would get on call, starting with a non-contrast head CT, going all the way through the perfusion and CT, uh, CT angiography studies, as well as some MR studies, as, and then the cerebral angiograms to help people really achieve these cognitive milestones that are really required as part of the training. I think what was a nice surprise when we did the course is almost it was well-received, but almost half our attendees were diagnostic radiologists as well, who were interested in getting more information on stroke imaging. So I think uh, we have worked, SIR has been very supportive of this, designing these courses in the future. Hopefully we can continue to grow these courses and we've even discussed developing these offerings to include simulation now that the simulation has gotten more robust to really start getting uh, some more hands-on and continuing to develop these educational resources for uh, radiologists uh, and IRs who are interested in getting into stroke or really just uh, even as a uh, refresher. I think that one thing that's worth mentioning is that stroke education is not a once and done thing. The field is changing so rapidly that what is taught today will probably not be what we would teach two years from now. I was going through some files on my computer and I came across a video file of case presentations on stroke interventions for the course that Marty and Jeff Carpenter ran, I think it was in 2016. And I'm listening and watching th these case presentations and I'm saying, we wouldn't do that now. That's not how things are, that's not our understanding. No. And that was state of the art then. And that was only a couple of years ago. Stroke education is an ongoing process. 
David, I agree with you 100%. And even the American Heart and American Stroke Association for centers that are accredited require eight hours minimum a year of education of CME within the stroke space, similar to other subspecialty areas. And I think that's a great point you bring up because, yeah, I mean, I look at how I perform stroke thrombectomy now compared to how I was performing it, you know, even five years ago, night and day. I think one of the valuable areas that I have for stroke education is that every endovascular case that we do gets discussed in a multidisciplinary conference, looking for ways to do things better. And we use that conference to discuss what the latest literature is, who's read something that might be relevant to how we treated this patient. It's a way of keeping all of us fresh and keeping all of us educated with cross-fertilization from the various journals that I read and someone else doesn't and vice versa. Well, and I think you bring up a great point also, Dave. Stroke is a team sport. There are so many different people involved in the care of stroke patients, starting, you know, with the, pa- you know, the patient's family, then EMS, the ED, you have imaging involved, you have the interventionalist, you have the stroke neurology team, and then you have the ICU team. And then we get out and after the acute phase, you still have the whole back end. You have the getting the patients taken care of and then the rehab. And then, you know, so there are a lot of different subspecialties that touch these patients. And I think what a lot of people kind of forget sometimes, it this is not just getting in there and pulling a clot out. There's a lot more to it. Great discussion, guys. Yeah, I think, I think you know, Marty, you gave a, a, a good overview of what are the, you know, current resources available. Of course, some of the evolution between clots from the past to the sort of more recent SIR stroke course and imaging boot camps that we've been uh, working on. And, and I know you've had, you know, some more hands-on experience with the newest generation of some of the simulators. And uh, obviously there's a lot of promise in terms of what they can help us with, not just with training or, or, or you know, cognitive assessment, but I think also perhaps into the future, really looking to confirm competence, you know, yeah. and not only for an interventional radiologist, really anybody performing stroke or other interventional procedures. So I think a lot of potential avenues that, that can be pursued even down the road of uh, simulation. I think that, Dave, what you and your team are doing in your facility as far as reviewing every case, uh, that's probably best practice, in my opinion, because there's always something to improve upon, learn from, and as exactly as you pointed out, and both of you you know, know this from experience, it, it is that team sport mentality that you may have picked up on something or read an article or can bring something to the table uh, that somebody else wasn't aware of. And all of those little tweaks, you know, to the, to the team is how we ultimately achieve more efficient workflow and, and ultimately better outcomes for the patient. So I, I think that's a great way of approaching it just so that each case can be a learning uh, opportunity. I, I think it's also a way for us to improve our judgment. There's an awful lot that's gray in terms of patient selection and what did you do and how did you care for the patient. And if it's not black and white and clear cut from the guidelines, you might make some wrong decisions. And it's very, very helpful to run your thought processes past other people so that you can improve judgment. Very good point. I think that's a 
a good additional educational value of, of running through these cases together. Now with that, and, and I think this sort of segues into uh, a next area, what are some of the credentialing and regulatory issues, maybe generally or more, even more specifically to interventional radiologists and stroke? All right, well, thanks everybody. This concludes part one. Stay tuned for part two to discuss interventional radiologists and stroke. 